Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. Today I'm talking to Tanya Brannigan, a senior journalist at The Guardian, about China and the stories she tells in her beautifully written, haunting new book, Red Memory. Red Memory is subtitled Living, Remembering and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution. And in it, Brannigan embarks on a journalistic excavation of exactly what happened during those violent years half a century ago. It's a book that Julia Lovell, author of Maoism, A Global History, has called unfailingly acute, exceptionally humane, a masterpiece. As ever, for more about the history that you're about to hear, please do head to our website at tttpodcast.com. Otherwise, here's me talking to Tanya just the other day. Well, let me begin by saying Tanya Brannigan. A warm welcome to Travels Through Time. I thought it'd be good if you could just begin this conversation by giving us um, a quick overview of your own personal and professional connection to China. So I was in China for around seven years. I went out in the year of the Olympics 2008, uh, just ahead of the Games, uh, and I stayed through to 2015 as the Guardian's China correspondent. I'd never particularly wanted to be a foreign correspondent per se, but I just really wanted to go to China because I felt it was the story. And and I suppose I still feel that way, um, that this is something that's really shaping our time. And just to see this huge country with this extraordinary history going through this transformation at absolute breakneck speed, uh, it just seemed to me that you couldn't miss that. Um, So I still feel I was incredibly lucky to be there and to witness all of that. And it was somewhere I'd always had an interest in as well. Uh, My mum's family are Thai Chinese. Uh, My grandmother actually tried to run away um, to join the communists in the 1930s. She was uh, very sort of angry, I think, about the fact that she wasn't getting the kind of education that her brothers were. And so it had always been something that I felt I sort of understood what people had seen in that movement, that there was a reason uh, why the communists came to power. Mm. The book we have before us, right before me here, Red Memory, is going to be out very, very soon. Its focus is predominantly on a moment which is called the Cultural Revolution. Could you explain what a cultural revolution was in broad historical terms, please? Well, one of the challenges is that it's very, very hard to understand because it's many movements rolled into one. It goes on for a decade. So it goes through these many waves and it's got these all these different sort of forces at work in it. But at its heart, it's really two things. Uh, The first is a very pragmatic, very cynical um, attempt to reestablish Mao's authority. It's Mao's way of destroying opposition within the party and reasserting his supremacy after a series of sort of challenges to it. Um, And then secondly, it is also an ideological crusade. Um, Mao was a deeply ideological person. And so alongside this very instrumental attempt to get back on top, this emperor's reassertion of power, 
it was also an ideological crusade. So even when the communists first came to power in 1949, he warned that the sugar-coated bullets of the bourgeoisie were a danger. In other words, that getting to power wasn't enough, that it was really critical that the party wasn't seduced by sort of comforts, that it had to keep up that revolutionary fervour. And that was something that he felt had been lost. And then what really sort of makes it uh, unique, I think, in the party's history, because we had seen these purges and rectifications going right back to the early days, and these power struggles, of course, going back right back to the early days. What really makes it different is that Mao looks outside the party and he turns to the masses and he use the ma- uses the masses, and in particular young people, very young teenagers in many cases, to do his work for him. So he overrides, he sort of tears up this party structure that's been built up and he goes outside those institutions and he turns to the power of the masses, the power of the crowd, using these sort of deep emotional uh, ideological forces to sort of whip up this fervour. And this, uh, as you describe it, it, it seems quite a singular historical moment. I'm sure we can find parallels if we root around in history enough, but it's a very clever piece of manipulation by a very charismatic and influential leader to kind of tap into this kind of energy of the young in 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 such a way. And the other part of the, the dynamic, which I think we have to emphasise at this point, is where the cultural revolution is in China's history today. Because you make the point repeatedly throughout the book that it's there, but it's not there. It's this kind of elusive um, moment in history. And it's it's very clear reading the book that it took some courage to, um, to square up to it, to try and um, treat it as a journalist would any story, to track down interviewees, to find out what happened, to record their experiences, and then to publish them. Um, You write, for instance, about being harassed when you tried to go to a museum based on this history. And there's many moments where interviewees just say it's not convenient now. Do you want to talk a little bit about where the Cultural Revolution is in China's consciousness in 2023. I think this is what really fascinated me about the subject, this sort of growing sense I had that the Cultural Revolution was actually everywhere in the sense that it seemed to underlie all these stories. It's such a formative moment in China's China's history. It really marks that shift where China goes from this great sort of Maoist nation to then after his death and the end of the Cultural Revolution, this pivot towards individualism and the market and all of these forces. And it's something that really makes sense of so much, whether it be the sort of the fractured family relationships you see. People talk about those having their roots in the events of the 60s, uh, the economy, So many different things about the culture and the society today just don't make sense unless you understand the Cultural Revolution. And yet it's this subject that is not, in fact, addressed most of the time. Uh, And particularly when I arrived, it felt very much as if it was on the margins. It's not absolutely taboo in the way that, say, discussion of the 1989 pro-democracy protests that began in Tiananmen Square and then the massacre that followed is. But It's definitely something that official sources do not like to talk about very much at all. We see very sparing, very, very sparing references. And on the occasions when we see them, they're usually quite sort of euphemistic or indirect. 
in terms of the sort of the public discussion, I mean, there actually was, particularly in the immediate aftermath, it was politically quite useful for the party to have this what's called scar literature, people writing about sort of the ordeals they'd been through. Um, and so we did see this sort of outpouring of literature and discussion, but that was pretty quickly rolled back. And even more so after 1989, the crackdown on the pro-democracy movement, it sort of became more and more taboo. And so we saw this order which basically said, don't publish any more histories of the Cultural Revolution. It's really important to say, though, that actually there have been Chinese historians sort of beavering away, usually in an unofficial capacity, doing extraordinary work, sometimes in exile, but sometimes sort of people within the country itself have done a remarkable job of keeping memories alive. Um, and I think the other thing that's really important to say is that it's very easy to see this in terms of authorities suppressing discussion of the Cultural Revolution. And when I started out, that was sort of what I thought it was about. But actually, so much of it is just about the personal trauma that people went through as well. And so there are many people who have never discussed, even within their families, what happened to them. Um, I remember someone saying to me, you know, well, I know something terrible happened to my grandfather, but if you try and touch on it, he gets very angry. So there's this sense that there is so much that people just don't want to address. And I think partly because speech, speaking out, honesty was in itself very dangerous in the Cultural Revolution. And these things have really deeply scarred people. So it's partly the trauma of it and partly this sort of lesson uh, that many survivors learn, which is you just don't address it. So for me as a journalist, it wasn't it wasn't a subject that I couldn't address, but I was obviously aware that I needed to be sensitive to the risks of the risks uh, to interviewees and of the concerns that they might have, um, and that was important. But there are people who really want to discuss this, and they're a minority in many ways. Um, and I think the other thing that's important to say is that not everybody, by any means, has a bad memory of the Cultural Revolution. Now, that obviously sounds bizarre to us because we're talking about a movement in which probably about 2 million people died, uh, about 36 million people hounded. And it really went right across the country, right from the very top of uh, politics. We saw both of Mao's successors die in the Cultural Revolution. But we also sort of saw right across the country these very poor people in very remote villages dying as well. So it seems to have touched everybody. And yet... There are quite a lot of people who actually feel nostalgic for the Cultural Revolution. Um, and that was one of the things that became really interesting to me as I started to work on this, realising that people had this sense of it perhaps being a purer time, as so often when we all look back at the past, we read it in the light of the present. So people sort of look at the inequality and the corruption and start to think, well, maybe that was a better time. Mm -hmm. So it's a very complex and contested area. And to me, that was one of the most interesting aspects of it. Yeah, you have a lot of different tensions there. You've, you've really um, sketched a few of them for us. But I think what's interesting to me as a historian is this human impulse as well, that they, despite the, the traumatic nature of it and the complex politics and even the contemporary, you know, kind of atmosphere of talking about it, there is a kind of need to bear testimony. Some people seem to be, that's a powerful impulse, isn't it? And sometimes people, even though they know they're putting themselves in peril, in danger, or maybe even their family as well, to let these stories completely slide away into the past unrecorded is too much, isn't it? Yeah, I think people, many people feel that this is something that they have to remember. 
And I mean, as I said, there are people who feel nostalgic for it or see it as a, a sort of a sense of what could have been, you know, if only it had worked out a bit differently um, in some way. And and they're all people who sort of want to take this moment in the past and use it to make people think about what's, you know, what China could be like, about the dangers of what China could become if you don't remember the lessons of the Cultural Revolution in some cases, but but in other cases saying, well, actually, we should look back to this and maybe there was a sort of a brighter future in there somewhere. So for many different reasons, uh, which I think are to do with trying to understand it for themselves, trying to put down a marker in history, there's a whole number of people who want to come forward and talk about this. And really, I suppose that's what unites the people in my book is that they're people who have chosen to remember when most of the people around them were trying to forget and get on with things. Mm, that's very beautifully put. And I think another question I just want to ask before we dive in to have a look at some of this history is is about where China is now in, in the early 2020s, because we have Xi who has talked about historical nihilism, which is a, a phrase that kind of echoes through the book, being something he's particularly concerned about. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, she is a really fascinating figure. Nobody thought when he came to power in 2012 that he would turn into the leader he has, who is just so dominant in a way that certainly no other leader has been since Deng Xiaoping. But I think most people would say he's more powerful than Deng Xiaoping now in terms of his ability, the sort of the control he has over the party, his ability to shape things. And of course, China itself is much more powerful uh, and much more connected to what's happening elsewhere than it, it was back then. He is somebody who comes from a very sort of rich party pedigree. His father was a revered revolutionary and then was sort of purged by Mao, fell from favour even before the Cultural Revolution, actually. He had a pretty traumatic experience in many ways in the Cultural Revolution. So his father was targeted uh, again. He apparently was denounced by his mother at one point. And he then was sent into exile like 17 million other teenagers. I mean, this wasn't particularly because of his, his father's role. It was just that the teenagers were all sort of dispatched from Beijing and the later and other cities in the later stages of the Cultural Revolution. And so he spends all these years uh, living in poverty in a farming community, a pretty sort of gruelling kind of life. What's striking about all this is that his father and other senior leaders in the party sort of took the lesson from the Cultural Revolution, from everything that happened in those years, that they had to ensure that there was never a strong man again. And so they come back, they collectivise party rule after Mao's death, um, they create institutions to some extent and sort of norms to try and control how leaders are selected. Leaders are basically expected to serve for two terms of five years and then step down and so forth. Um, but she seems to take quite a different lesson, which is, in fact, that you need to sort of have the right person, uh, namely himself, at the top um, and with absolute power to sort of control the party structures. Uh, and so already he's embarked on a third term at the top of the party. That's sort of broken the precedent of the, the two previous leaders. And he has a degree of control that really nobody expected and not a personality cult of the level or extent or kind even that Mao had clearly. But nonetheless, there is a celebration of him as a man, as an individual, 
often, in fact, harking back to the sort of the hardship uh, that he experienced in the Cultural Revolution, this sort of creation myth, I suppose, is, is the years he spent in the countryside learning to serve the people and becoming a man in his, his terms. So we now see this sort of celebration of a central leader. We see a leader who's been very much unshackled, um, who's put all his people into place around him and who has embarked on a term of indefinite rule. And it's just fascinating that he would come there with sort of come out of this experience with such a different perspective. On top of all that, he is somebody who is, as as, as we said, uh, very concerned with history um, and always has been. So when he comes to the leadership, he actually talks about taking up the, the baton of history and so forth. Um, but he's within the first few months, he issues this document, the party issues this document, which talks about the sort of the perils to the party that it faces. And many of them are things that you might expect, such as sort of Western style democracy and, of course, um, the Western media, free press, things he's not very keen on. Um, but fascinatingly, one of them is historical nihilism, which includes, among other things, uh, um, any attempt to say that there's really a difference between what happened pre and post Mao, which is clearly just extraordinary to anybody who knows anything at all about the era. Mm. But there again, we have this point that I was making earlier and that you explained in more detail that this kind of presence of the uh, the Cultural Revolution and absence at the same time, you know, that, that's a kind of duality. And there's a really touching point, quite a profound moment in, in the book where you have one of your characters goes to Europe for a tour and you meet up with them and you say, where did you go to? I imagine expecting them to tell you about Venice or Paris or... Um, somewhere else like this, and they say Auschwitz. And the reason for this, of course, is that this is about remembrance. And for a, for a culture in a country which has learned amnesia so eloquently, it's incredible that there's such a monument to the past like this. Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating about it in a way is that China is a culture in which history is so important it's always had this sort of real moral force. So there's this sort of an argument uh, made by a Chinese scholar, well, history is our religion in a sense. You know, we don't turn to the Bible as the sort of the root of our thought that history has always functioned as a kind of moral primer. And so that's made control of history, of course, very important um, for the party. But that also means that that sort of control of history means erasing and reshaping a lot of the past in this sort of continuous uh, process, but that's definitely something that we've sort of seen accelerate in recent years. Mm, absolutely fascinating. Well, listen, let's let's go and have a look at some of this history ourselves. And it always begins with me putting a question to you, which is if you could. And actually, it's quite funny. I'll I'll add a little bit here because I always say to our guests, if you could travel back through time, um, which year would you like to uh, visit? And I noticed in your book that one of the things that was discouraged during the Cultural um, Revolution was any idea of time travel in history, which was... Um, oh, was that's actually thing. a much more recent edict. Um, oh, really? So well, <coughs> we may be contravening all sorts of uh, norms and rules and regulations here, but I'll put the question to you in any case. Um, which calendar year would you like to go back and have a look at? It has to be 1966, I think. It's the start of the Cultural Revolution it's where this all begins, um, and it's a moment that sees some of the the worst, I suppose, of the era, but also some of the most significant moments in terms of how it will develop. 
Mm, it's a very loaded um, year for us here in the West. You write that a, um, a universe away, it was the year of Twiggy and Blow Up, of Revolver and Pet Sounds and Blonde on Blonde, of Acid, Andy Warhol and so on. Lots going on in the West. In China, people might not be quite so familiar. So should we try and set the scene? I think the character that I just want you to talk about for a moment here is Mao, of course, who by this point, I think is in his early 70s. And I was trying to think of an equivalent that we could kind of make him real. He's a bit like Churchill after the war. He's this kind of big political figure with a huge legacy, which is kind of maybe seeming a bit older these days, um, back in, in 1966. But do you want to just a little bit about him and um, if we imagine the start of the year, maybe January or so, what, what's Mao up to? What's his place in Chinese society? I mean, as you say, he is this towering figure. Um, he establishes quite early on in the movement his dominance over the party uh, and manages to maintain it through all the years, which, as you know, for a revolutionary party is often not an easy thing to do. He brings the communists to victory in 1949, uh, defeating the Kuomintang, pushing them back into Taiwan. And he really reigns supreme. He's somebody who has challenged orthodox Marxism in that sense, that he's put the peasantry at the forefront of the revolution rather than the proletariat. And he's he's essentially, in his view, I think he's sort of proved that it's really not just about um, the necessary sort of underlying economic and social conditions, but that through your sheer force of will, you can sort of transform the world. That's very much what Maoism is about. By 1966, he is in a much more difficult position, uh, however, as you say. The critical point really comes in 1958 when he launches the Great Leap Forward, which is this extraordinarily, insanely ambitious hubristic project to take China from being an agrarian economy into being this modern, industrialised society to overtake the UK, for example, in terms of sort of production and things. He's not really that interested in us, of course. What he really wants is to sort of take up the banner of international communism and essentially sort of challenge the Soviet Union, because um, by this point, Sino-Soviet relations are already in quite a bad way. Um, it is an absolute disaster. They collectivise farming. They try to sort of push through this industrial plan. And what happens as a result is this absolutely devastating famine in which an estimated 40 to 45 million people die. Um, still not really discussed in China, of course. It's described as the sort of the years of natural difficulties mm -hmm. and, and so forth. It's certainly not something that the sort of the party has put its hand up to. But it, it's a disaster. So there are people starving all over the country. Mao's trying to sort of forge ahead. And in fact, he has to be reined in um, by other senior leaders in the party as they realise just what a disaster it has become. I mean, partly through ideological fervour, partly through ambition, you know, all these local cadres have been declaring, yes, we've exceeded our yields sort of threefold like you told us to. And of course they haven't. So when the grain starts getting taken away from them, accordingly, according to these sort of bumper yields, people are just left with nothing. And it's such a scarring moment. And this really damages his reputation or is it is it kind of seen he's maybe played his part and it's time to marginalise him and there's a new generation because I know at this point there's a successor who's been nominated people there's a general sense of what the future might look like without Mao. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, Mao is still in charge. Um, so he's still there at the top. But there is definitely a sense that his supremacy has been whittled away somewhat. And of course, for him, this is sort of exacerbated. He looks to the Soviet Union, the speech that Khrushchev has given, uh, turning on Stalin. He's thinking about his legacy, I think, as much as the moment of being in charge. He's also, you know, thinking what, what's happening to this legacy of mine. And so there is real anxiety, paranoia, perhaps, on his part about what's going to become of him and of his revolution. Because as I said, he is. A, there's no doubt he is a deeply, deeply ideological person mm. and he wants his vision to prevail. Okay, okay. Well, I think that's a really good platform for where we're going to go. So we're going to have a look at three different moments through um, 1966, which really tell a story and um, show us the beginning phases um, of the Cultural Revolution. And the, this begins with um, a moment in April, I think you've chosen. Do you want to tell us? about what it is. Yes. So this is the Politburo Standing Committee meeting. Um, the Politburo Standing Committee is the very, very top political body in China. So just a, a few members of the sort of senior leadership present. He calls a meeting in the middle of April in Hangzhou, not uh, Beijing. This is significant, I guess, because he is on manoeuvres in every sense. He's been travelling around the country a lot. Um, he's been a bit unwell. He sort of pulls, so he pulls people down to Hangzhou, which is this rather beautiful, famously beautiful city uh, in the east of China. And I think this is sort of one of the critical moments because it's really where people at the top start to see that the wheels are turning, that something very significant is happening beyond the usual kind of jockeying for power uh, and manipulation and so on. And I think one of the obvious questions about the Cultural Revolution, when you start reading about it, you think, why did nobody stop him when they sort of still had the chance? And there were lots of reasons to do with fear and ambition and all of those things. But also in part, I think it speaks to the secrecy and the ambiguity um, and the way that sort of Mao always cloaked what he was doing. And so things only gradually start to take shape. People can kind of suddenly see uh, at this point in April, people, I think, really start to realise where this might be going. The opening shot of the Cultural Revolution itself, and this sounds absurd to anybody listening probably, is actually a newspaper critique of a historical play. It is widely read, sort of probably accurately, it's a play about an official um, uh, being purged by an emperor. But it's widely read as really being about Mao and how he purged one of the very senior figures who actually dared to sort of challenge him over the Great Leap Forward. Mao, in fact, initially praises it publicly, but he secretly arranges for this newspaper critique to be published, and he's instrumental in sort of looking over this piece and editing it and puts it in. And at first, nobody sort of reprints it because it just seems like a sort of slightly a piece that's nobody's really sure what lies behind it. But then they realise that Mao's responsible, and so it sort of starts to appear. Now, the author is actually an official as well as a playwright, and his patron is the mayor of Beijing, uh, Peng Zhen. He's one of China's top leaders. He's not a man who's interested in artistic freedom at all, um, so he's not interested in sort of defending the play on this basis, but he realises essentially that his own 
career is on the line. And so he's sort of trying to defend this player. He actually raises it with Mao and Mao reportedly says, oh, you guys work it out. You know, I don't know what this fuss is about. I'm not worried about this and so forth. Um, but in fact, of course, Mao has turned on him behind the scenes. And so by the time that he arrives in Hangzhou in April, he asks to see Mao um, in private and Mao says no. And at that point, it is clearly very obvious to him uh, that he is in big, big trouble. The other critical thing, it's no coincidence that he is the right-hand man of Liu Xiaoqi, who is not only Mao's heir apparent and therefore a sort of potential threat in that sense, but also is one of the sort of the more pragmatic people who've started to reign in the Great Leap Forward. The other thing that's not a coincidence is that Liu Xiaoqi um, is out of the country when this meeting is called. He's on a tour in Vietnam, I think. And um, by the time he arrives in Hangzhou, the meeting's already a few days in and it becomes very clear to him that it's too late to mm. save Peng Zhen. And I think it just says so much about the way that Mao operates the skill. The but it's cynicism. got all the elements here, hasn't it, of, um, of, of the classic fall from grace or the political manoeuvre, maybe we should um, brand it as, because you have the kind of bureaucratic nature of, um, you know, socialism, communism at this point. Um, we, we're not long after the party congress of 2020, when everyone, uh, 2022, when everyone was guessing what was going on behind the scenes. So it's not too much of a leap of imagination to, to, to look back 50 years and, and see the same things happen. And, and this like, I suppose, trivial but important matter of a piece of art. And it makes me um, wonder, and I want to put the question to you about artistic expression at this point, maybe pre-1966, was there quite a lot of openness if you were um, a playwright? What was your kind of um, worries or were you able to get on with your business without too much trouble? Well, Mao has made it very clear from a very early stage, actually, um, that he believes artists have to serve the party. That's their job. He sees art as a weapon. I mean, he talks about it in militarised terms. Yeah, art should not explore but follow the correct path. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and also that, you know, he wants art soldiers that you need not just military people on the battlefield, but you need people fighting the battle on the cultural front. And uh, th this is the sense in which the cultural revolution is, it's a cultural revolution, not just a political uh, manoeuvre. Um, so he's he's absolutely serious about that. And he makes that very clear, you know, right back in the sort of the 1940s and early 40s and so on. It's not something that's a great surprise to anybody, but I think people thought they had more leeway, certainly. Then in the 50s, you get the anti-rightist movement. Mao famously says, let a hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred schools of thought contend. What's unclear is whether, as some people think, that was an entirely cynical attempt to kind of lure out people who might challenge him, or whether in fact, he was genuinely taken aback by the realisation that there would be quite a lot of criticism of the party and the people at the top of it. Um, but we see a huge sort of purge of intellectuals and, and scholars. And so by the time that the Cultural Revolution comes, it's very clear that Mao has a view of art as being in service to the communist cause and in particular his vision of the communist cause. But nonetheless, there has been more freedom. And when the Cultural Revolution comes, 
you see books being burned, you see artworks being destroyed, uh, temples being raised. There is a, an attempt to expunge the old. And of course, artists paying a really high price. So for example, Lao Xie, who was one of the most revered of China's writers, is attacked by Red Guards and ends up drowning, presumably drowning himself in a lake, having been humiliated by them. Mm. And of course, you have in the book, the story of Wang Jilin, who who really is a character through which this history is told. And we'll leave that to one side for a moment, but it's um, an absolutely fascinating story. Just one extra question on this particular moment, which is about Mao's relationship with his political rivals. It seems to me that he's an aging figure here. Um, he can maybe see that um, there's a new generation who were poised to succeed him, and he is not willing to retreat or maybe let them take um, his revolution through into a more bureaucratic phase. I don't know. Do you want to talk about that? Did he have to always be the number one? Was he always going to um, be a difficult figure for successors to deal with, for example? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there is no doubt that this was a man who believed in reigning supreme. One of the striking things about the Cultural Revolution is many of its sort of victims are people who have not only been devoted to the party from the very earliest years and made immense sacrifices for it in, in many cases, um, but people who've worked very closely with Mao, who've stood alongside him. Uh, when Peng Zhen is in fact sort of purged just after this, formally done just after this meeting in Hangzhou, he says, you know, wasn't I the first guy to cry long live, as in long live Chairman Mao? So He's saying you know, it's not just the revolution devouring its young, it's actually the revolution devouring the people who are sort of right at the heart of it, saying you know, this, this was someone who'd sort of worked with Mao for so long and yet Mao was still turning upon him. And so I think that's something that is sort of very much there in Mao for a long time, although it obviously becomes accentuated with age and, and with power. There's a letter that he writes to his wife, Zhang Xing, in 1966, um, very early on, which says... The tiger and the monkey uh, both exist in me, as in the sort of tiger spirits and monkey spirits, but it's the tiger that reigns supreme. And so while the Cultural Revolution shows his almost anarchic side, his love of disruption, uh, his belief that disruption and turmoil could be a very powerful force, it also shows his absolute determination to be on top and have a very tight grip on everything that's happening. That leads me actually to a question about sources. As a journalist or historian um, researching this particular moment, is there a lot for you to go on or is it quite a, I suppose, opaque piece of history that you have to really disentangle? There's a lot of information out there. Um, as I said, there's been wonderful work done particularly by China, although not solely by Chinese historians, which really cover any everything from internal party sort of machinations through to the sort of the broader rippling out in, into the provinces of these effects. So we do have quite a lot of information. Uh, more becomes available. For example, uh, Yang Jisheng, who's a wonderful Chinese historian, published a book quite recently called The World Turned Upside Down. Uh, and that had sort of a host of information in there that doesn't appear elsewhere. Um, but certainly there are recent histories of the era by people like Frank Dakota. Um, going back further, Mao's Last Revolution by Roderick McFarker and Michael Schoenhals is, again, wonderful sort of reading. But there is a sort of a wealth of information out there and there are scholars doing fantastic work even now that's really worth seeking out. So there is a good deal to go on, but obviously there is still a lot shrouded in mystery. I always wondered and continue to wonder 
where you know what 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 I'll get to find out in my lifetime mm. um about all these events and there may of course be records which are destroyed we just don't know but what we do know is that in recent years uh more and more of the archives under these concerns about historical nihilism more and more of the archives seem to have been um sort of put put away so scholars can't access them anymore in other words so uh, work that was being done by sort of foreign and Chinese scholars seems to have sort of become much harder, certainly in some areas. Hello there. It's time for a word about our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours. As the days get longer and you start to think about plans for the year ahead, it's a great time to pick up one of their catalogues to see what 2023 might hold for you. In March, for instance, they have a tour called Venice, the triumph of light and colour, led by the art historian Tom Abbott, which sweeps through the palazzi, galleries and churches of the great city of Canals. In June, you could head off to the untamed landscape of classical Greece with the archaeological historian Andrew Wilson. There you could explore Byzantine churches, sanctuaries and monasteries. Or how about a trip to investigate the history of the Teutonic Knights at Malbork in Poland? That tour sets off at the end of August. I mentioned just three of ACE's cultural tours just now, but there are about a hundred or so on offer right now in all sorts of places and on all sorts of subjects. Why not begin your tour by having a look for yourself by visiting www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or by giving their friendly team a call on 01223 841 055. Well, from a moment which is maybe quite difficult to research and know with any great clarity, although you seem to have um, teased out the narrative from it, let's move to a second scene, which is um, much better known and um, it's quite cinematic, almost vivid in its um, in its richness. So this happens on the 16th of July. We're talking three months or so later on, and it involves Mao once again. So yes, on the 16th of July, Chairman Mao swims the Yangtze near Wuhan. We get a wonderfully vivid depiction of it from propaganda at the time. It says the sky over Wuhan that day was bright and clear. Tens of thousands of people, ebullient with joy, thronged both banks of the river. Um, You have swimmers already in, in the Yangtze holding up apparently big banners with Mao Zedong quotes, obviously better swimmers than me because I'm not sure I could manage to do that. But nothing compares to Mao himself taking to the water. Now, he did genuinely love swimming. Um, his personal photographer told me that he she used to sort of see him on family holidays, take pictures of him kind of sculling around on his back with a cigarette between his lips. Um, it was one of his sort of passions. But Mao being Mao, everything he did was also very political. So this was unquestionably a statement of intent. He'd done swims in the Yangtze before and it 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 was in a sense the same message, which is I'm battling the winds and waves, you know, I'm here, I'm vigorous, I'm hale, I'm hearty. But it had renewed uh, importance or even greater importance this time. He'd he'd been travelling, as I said, he'd really been out of the public eye, he'd had periods of ill health. And he's now 72 and he's coming back swimming in this huge river, showing, you know, I'm here I can battle this. Doing so, um, according to the People's Daily, in a sort of an extraordinary time that any Olympian of today would uh, 
envy. I mean, move, move over Michael Phelps. Apparently he did 15 kilometres in 65 minutes. Still finding time, according to the propaganda, to uh, manage to instruct somebody in how to do backstroke on the way. So he was sort of multitasking as well. Um, somebody worked it out and even allowing for the currents, you know, that's a, a truly world record breaking feat um, at the age of 72. But whatever you make of the official version of it, there's no doubt that it did demonstrate the most sort of dramatic way that he could, that he was back. Mm. He's not going anywhere and he's ready for action. I mean, that's the key thing. Yeah, so the propaganda talks about him, you know, battling the wind and waves. We've got to plunge and face the storm and plunge ahead. Oh God, it's metaphorically rich, isn't it? And you can imagine almost... Uh, um, Mao's going swimming again, almost being a euphemism for being on manoeuvres. You know, there's something, something's brewing. And I wanted to ask you about this because he was a big guy, wasn't he? He was about six foot tall. So he was imposing in that way. This idea of him being athletic and vigorous, it made me think of, you know, Putin after Yeltsin, that idea of a country identifying itself with a maybe a, a leader of a different type, because this idea of China being the sick the sick man of Asia, to use a slightly antiquated language. But that's how the country was seen in, in the early 20th century. And, and absolutely, that's sort of something that Mao seizes on. I mean, he, in his very earliest writings, he starts drawing this relationship, not only between physical health and sort of spiritual and political health for the individual and, and for the country, uh, but specifically, in fact, about swimming. And, you know, he writes a poem about swimming where he says it's better than idly strolling in a courtyard and and so forth. So it, it's a very sort of genuinely rooted thing for him. And in fact, sort of to my amusement, when I was in China, if you ever sort of heard officials being asked about what they like to do in their spare time, they would invariably reply that they liked Chinese opera and swimming, because swimming was obviously the sort of safe Mao endorsed. There was nothing bourgeois about it. Everybody could say they liked swimming perfectly safely. In fact, Xi Jinping was a rarity because he was one of the sort of first people to say I quite like football, and that was um, that was a bit of a dramatic departure. It had always been the swimming pool until then. So yes, Mao sees physical prowess as being sort of linked to political vigor, I suppose. And like Putin, he uses that. I mean, there's a the famous story of him inviting Khrushchev to a, a summit in, in Beijing and he insists on holding it in the swimming pool. Khrushchev can't swim apparently and so he gets this little pair of armbands um, rather undignifiedly sort of standing in the shallow end while sort of Mao skulls about. I mean that was definitely a statement so he really uses this as a, as a you know kind of political point yeah it's it's i think it's also the thing and the like the publicity of it so so this was written about in newspapers i think there's a photograph where you can see mao's head bobbing around um a little bit is that right it was very quickly um well known about and i suppose it um begs the question of how well disciplined at this point was the apparatus of the media um was it very efficient if he wanted to get make a point and get a, a get a line out was he in complete control absolutely and uh, i mean as i said the sort of the i suppose the times when you sort of see inconsistencies sometimes are because he likes doing things behind the scenes um you know as with the critique of the play people don't initially realize that he's sanctioned it so that's where you sometimes see the sort of the ambiguities or the complications creeping in because it's not sure people aren't sure what Mao wants but when it's clear that Mao wants something then that is absolutely uh, what the media do and so we see this huge coverage of him 
swimming, follow Chairman Mao in advance in the teeth of the great storms and waves, it says. Um, the People's Daily, which is the sort of the uh, top party paper, says to learn to swim without plunging in just doesn't work. And the same is true of making revolution. You know, they're all spreading this message for Mao. And so in years to come on the anniversary, you see people taking to the water with their big pictures of Mao. Again, sounds incredibly unwieldy and rather dangerous, frankly. But you see sort of people taking to the waves. Interestingly, actually, somebody was saying even after the um, Cultural Revolution was over, they were sort of working as a sort of low-level propaganda officer somewhere and sort of got a call from their boss saying, you know, haven't you arranged a swimming event for today? Don't forget it's the anniversary. So this was something so that has, had yeah, real heritage. force. I mean, it's it, it's a sort of a strange sort of contrast because you always have the sort of the grandeur of this vision. And then if you believe uh, Mao's physician who wrote this sort of tell-all book, the reality was rather grimmer. He sort of talks about Mao insisting on sort of plunging into the Yangtze and they're saying, hang on, it's full of industrial pollution and I can mm. see you know human feces floating past and things. But, you know, Mao's sort of undaunted by this and um, dives in and the rest of them have no choice but to follow. I should also ask you at this point, because July 66 uh, is quite an interesting um, month anyway in politics. I know we get on um, uh, to the August month, which is maybe more critical in a moment. But in July, we have we have the fall of Leo Shaoqi in July at the same time. So there's a lot happening in politics at the same time that uh, Mao is swimming around in the river. Is that right? It's a hugely tumultuous time. As I said, I mean, as we sort of saw with the meeting in Hangzhou, it's such a sort of moving target in some ways because all these things kind of are set into motion and they start to work gradually. Um, and so what people sort of regard as formally marking the start of the Cultural Revolution, for example, is the, the May 16 notification, which is this missive sent out to sort of senior figures in the party that make it clear that Mao has sort of turned his guns on people inside the party. He he talks about people sort of basically pretending to work alongside us, you know, be our successors, but actually they're sort of their they're vipers, you know, they're, they're turning against us. But then it's only, for example, a year later that Liu Shaoqi's name is actually attached to that formally. So we see this sort of process of insinuation, of gradually pushing people out, manoeuvring people around. And so there's this sense of this sort of gathering storm. It's clear to people by this point within the party that something really major is happening. Um, but I think for people outside the party that's still less clear. We've mm. started to see as well the formation of these groups of Red Guards forming in schools. So these are sort of essentially political vigilantes on in schools, uh, on university campuses. They're getting together. They're starting to sort of turn upon teachers and, and leaders and so forth. But it's not clear how sort of seismic this is going to be. I mean, I, I think back to one of the very first interviews I did with someone uh, about the Cultural Revolution and she was the widow of a man who's sort of hugely revered in China now uh, and was revered back then as sort of, the, you know, the father of modern Chinese architecture. He was a, a huge figure. Um, but he was disgraced in the Cultural Revolution and she was sort of talking to me about the early stages and she said, well, you know, I, I came back and I saw the state he was in because he'd sort of just been denounced and, uh, you know, I knew that a dark cloud was covering the country, but I, I didn't know it was going to be there for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So over the summer, I guess we sort of see these storm the clouds build. And it's, I suppose if you put these two, uh, two scenes together, what happens in April and what happens here, we're seeing 
just how formidable a political operator Mao is because he's the kind of grandmaster of the, I don't know, like kind of playing politics in, in the back corridors, you know, kind of whispering against people or creating strategies to bring people down. But he's also the showman and he can combine those two different facets of his personality in a, in a very powerful way, which probably does explain why he... I guess, you said before, why did people not stop this? It's very difficult when you have a figure as effective as that to confront them. I mean, at what point do you confront them? Yeah, I mean, as you say, he has this ability to sort of combine the sort of the political sort of knifings behind mm. the scenes with this very broad, you know, he's revered at this mm. point. He is revered by the people. He has a godlike status. Um and so to take that on in any way, to challenge that is really extraordinarily di difficult. And he has, he has this level of power over the ordinary person that is really quite hard for us to get our minds around, mm. I think. Mm. And sometimes you don't appreciate these things when you look back um, at a cold distance of time. Okay, well, let's move on to, um, to the third of your choices, which is the 18th of August. So another month on. Do you want to tell us what's happening there, please? This is the first of several mass rallies he will hold uh, for Red Guards in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. It's very important space in Chinese history. I mean, it, it's the political heart of China. I think in the West, when we hear Tiananmen Square, we tend to think about 1989 and the pro-democracy demonstrations. But in fact, its importance in China goes back much further. It's been right at the heart of so many movements over the years. Um, it's in fact, it's it's positioned right in front of the Forbidden City. And when the communists take power in 1949 and start rebuilding Beijing, they kind of embrace, but also sort of transform this political geography. So instead of um, being this restricted space, it's a site for rallies. It's a site where people express their fervor for the communist Cause is it, as well. Is it right to think of it as a place that people would be drawn to, if it, you know, like as a place of political discourse, but a natural gathering point as well? It's well, it's it's a place where people sort of can go to protest and so forth. But it, it, in Mao's vision, it's obviously a place that people sort of come to on orders, if I can put it that way. Um, so people are summoned there. Basically, they know the the students, the young people are told there's going to be a big meeting, there'll be senior leaders. They don't realise they're going to see Mao himself, but the Red Guard groups are sort of summoned uh, for what they understand will be a big rally. And then Mao himself appears in this extremely dramatic moment. And again, it speaks to the man, I think, that although he is somebody who is so good at uh, rhetoric, at coining and using phrases, that in fact, he doesn't talk to the crowds he doesn't address the crowds from the stage or give a big speech. He's just there as a presence and it's other people who speak for him. Um, so he's there. He's in an army uniform, which is in itself a kind of statement that he's in martial mode, I guess. Um, he's got Lin Biao, who's his Minister of Defence and sort of Chief Toady. Um, he's a hugely important figure in kind of building his personality cult um, and will become uh, his next sort of heir apparent, although he too will die before the Cultural Revolution is out. Um, Lin Biao is there to sort of tell the young people to sort of go out and destroy the four olds, the old customs and the old ways and so forth. And that really sends the um, Cultural Revolution into its next phase 
of mass political action. Um, but it's I, I just think it's so fascinating that Mao actually isn't there to give a big speech. He uses the power of his presence, this this sort of godlike status he has. It's the fact he is there that matters so much. And then the one of the critical moments in this is that a young red guard climbs up and um, puts an armband on him, a red guard armband, and he accepts it. And he says to her, you know, what's your name? And she gives her name. And he says, oh, as, as in refined, as in refined. And he says, oh, Yauma, which means, you know, be martial. So he, through this, this encounter, which is then reported across the newspapers and so forth, he sends this message, which is that we are now entering a new phase. The sort of the gloves are off, I guess, in a sense. And this is what really transforms the Cultural Revolution from something that is happening sort of on schools and campuses, but in what you might consider a more contained way into this. It, it's an explosive moment. So in Beijing, we see a couple of deaths before the rally in the weeks before the rally. But in the weeks that follow, we see hundreds of deaths. And this is me, a pattern that will be repeated across the country. It's, it's enormously symbolically powerful in so many ways. But one of the key things there, it seems like you have the elder statesman, who's almost this Louis XIV figure in a way, who's this kind of great, you know, kind of focal point for um, the politics and culture of the country. A member of like kind of the younger generation, like kind of connected together as if he's in some ways like kind of approving or passing a bat. And I didn't quite know. Absolutely. And, and, and there's a suggestion, I suppose, implicit in that, that there is a problem maybe in between. So maybe there's a generation in between who have lost the, the zeal of revolution it's kind of, it's lost its heat, it's lost its force. Do you think that's right? Yeah, absolutely. He's sort of reigniting this. And of course, I mean, from a cynical point of view, certainly, you know, speaking to survivors of the era, they say, well, you know, why did he get kids to do it? Because maybe the adults wouldn't have done, you know, you start there. Um, and once you've got the kids to act, you can do pretty much what you want it's to begin in schools but as well particularly sort of in somewhere like China which had such veneration for both authority and education Mm. that to sort of begin in schools and campuses was a supremely powerful I mean you you do repudiate in in your introduction this connection it's a very glib connection that some people have made between um, left-wing students today and the red guard of of 1966 but I suppose what is connected in, in, in a different way there is that energy of youth. It's that kind of the idea of wanting to change things and almost like a sense of indignation that they might feel sometimes. That's what he's trying to tap into, isn't he? I know it's a very different way. but it, it's, Yes. And, and it, you know, it's this, these forces that sort of feed on each other, I suppose. You've got sort of in that moment, you have the energy of young people, their grievances, but also you have this veneration of Mao. And so yeah. once he gives that seal of authority. Firstly, it means that other people no longer feel able to challenge or to rein in the Red Guards as sort of people have been attempting to. They can't do that in the same way because it has the seal of his approval. Um, But also because he's said that, they're sort of infused with this sense that this is now their mission, you know. It's a kind of moral This is their chance. Yeah, and I think for that generation, there was definitely a sense, you know, many of them had 
parents who perhaps had been in the party themselves, um, especially the initial sort of wave of Red Guards in many cases, people, parents perhaps who'd been in the party, who'd sort of been there through the revolutionary years. And the party had sort of achieved this extraordinary feat. I mean, when you think about it, looking at it now, you know, it started with 13 people having a sort of secret meeting in Shanghai, um, having to run away halfway through the meeting because they thought the police were sort of onto them and finishing it off on a sort of pleasure boat on a mm. lake in a nearby town. Mm. And somehow here we are over 100 years later and they're still in still in charge. Um, but to, to people in 1966, you know, they had started from these very unpromising beginnings. They'd survived the persecution by the Guomindang when sort of Chiang Kai-shek turned on them. They'd made their way through the Second World War, you know, the Japanese invasion, and they'd somehow come out on top and managed to unify this country, which had been so fractured for so long, and start building this new society. And to a lot of people, that did kind of seem miraculous. Um, even with the many problems and sort of sufferings that were obvious from a sort of a very early stage of the project, it did seem an incredible feat to many people. And I think for some of those sort of teenagers at that point, there was also a sense of, well, this is this incredible work that's been done. And so the my first interviewee in the book um, sort of talks about this sense that, you know, their parents had done all these incredible things and they wanted, have, having yeah. been told, having been yeah. raised on this whole literature about um, revolutionary feats and sacrifice that, you know, this was their chance to make a difference. And up until the Cultural Revolution, they hadn't really had the opportunity to do that in a sense. So I think for many of them, this will have felt like their moment. You know, the country's under threat, we're being told by Mao. We can take up this banner. We can sort of adopt this mission. And I think for young people in particular, that's a very powerful It's a hugely, message. hugely powerful message. Um, lots to think about. One thing, I mean, this is known as Red August, and we have these Red Guards, which... Um, I don't know how formalised the structure is, but whilst we have a little bit of time left to us, I thought to really convey the sense of what was happening on the ground away from Tiananmen Square, I'd ask if you could read a couple of paragraphs from um, a chapter when you, you you dive into this this moment in 1966. And it concerns um, the murder of a teacher who you... Um, reference as the first victim in Beijing. So I suppose this is around August of 1966. So this is prior to the rally. It's a, a horrifying moment. I mean, there's sort of no other way to describe it. There's a brilliant documentary, uh, incidentally, if anyone has the time to watch it, have a look on YouTube for a, a documentary by an uh, independent documentarian in China called Hu Jie. The documentary is called Though I Am Gone, and it really captures the events in uh, shocking detail, um, but also just the sense of how devastating it was for her family and for those who loved her, obviously. Um, and I think the moment of her death is still really regarded as one of the sort of the turning points almost the turning points for China, actually, when you sort of speak to survivors of that era, just a moment of such horror, really. She was the vice principal of a girls' school. She was sort of known as being in charge of discipline, quite a sort of tough figure. She was the daughter of a, a banker, but she was also a really sort of stalwart 
uh, party member. And this is one of the terrible things about the sort of cultural revolution is really the party sort of turning on its own and these people who sort of had given a lot of their lives to a cause that they really believed in, uh, only for it to, to turn upon them. So when the Red Guard groups began to form and when we began to sort of see the criticism of party leaders and teachers and university figures and so forth, um, girls at her school uh, began to criticise her for a number of offences, uh, some of which seemed to us completely ludicrous. For example, they sort of said she'd opposed Chairman Mao because a, a student had said, well, what happens if there's an earthquake or some kind of disaster? You know, should we take Chairman Mao's portrait before we leave the school? And she was sensible enough not to say, no, just leg it. Um, but she said something along the lines of, well, it's you know, important um, to leave quickly or something. And and that was enough for her to come into criticism, among many other things. But as often in these cases, it was a mixture of sort of supposed political sins and frankly, just the grievances or sort of grudges of, of people around her. Girls dragged her onto a stage in shackles and forced her to kneel while they kicked and struck her, beating her with iron-banded wooden rifles used for drilling. When she fell, they hauled her up by her hair and began again. They trashed her flat and blanketed it with the posters. Don't dream you were free at home. Officials ignored Bian's plea for help, and her husband, Wang, began to understand that there was no escape, nowhere to go, no one else to beg. Beating someone like me to death is just like killing a dog, Bian told him. One morning, she woke earlier than usual. She shook hands with Wang as though they were strangers. Then she went to work. Practice had perfected the rituals of abuse. The girls at the school poured ink over victims and forced them to chant as they paraded, I am a counter-revolutionary revisionist. I deserve the beatings. I am damned to death. They hit them each time their voices dropped or broke. They drove them into the centre of the playground. They forced them to kneel in the blistering sun and to carry large baskets laden with earth. When Bian fell, they trampled her in their heavy army boots. Someone yelled for clubs. They beat one teacher till her pelvis fractured. They hit another till his shirt was soaked in blood. They were not finished with Bian. They dragged her to clean the toilets. A staff member saw her there, stained and unsteady, trying to brace herself against the wall, but sliding down to the floor. It's a horrifying account, um, but one I thought was important to, to read, which kind of sits in this fascinating book that you've written about the the period. It's very difficult, as you say, to put very simple definitions on the cultural revolution. It moves through various phases and it's amorphous and seems to me propelled by an energy as much as uh, kind of as it is by Mao's personality. But I really, really do advise people to read the book because there's there's messages in there about humanity as well and about memory and about the importance of telling stories and bearing witness to events. So there's a lot there for people to think about. I've got one last question to put your way before we finish today, though. Um, we always like to inject a little bit of material history into our episodes. So we ask our guests if they could metaphorically put their hand out and pick up an object from the year 1966, almost as a talisman or a reminder of the history or the conversation today, is there anything that you would like to have? 
I think in a way one would be tempted to perhaps rescue some of the treasures um, right across the country from Tibet to Shanghai that were destroyed in that year um, in the frenzy of destruction um, to, to, to rescue the pre-cultural revolution treasures, in other words, that were sort of uh, lost in that time. But if I had to have something that summed up the era itself, I think perhaps the first big character poster that set it off. So this was a sort of a denunciation um, of the officials at a university in Beijing. It was painted and put up on campus and which Mao then ordered to be read on the radio. And in many ways that sort of set off the destruction and the chaos that followed. What an object. Well, Tanya Brannigan, thank you very much for taking the time today to come on Travels Through Time. Thank you. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Tanya Brannigan about the events she describes in much more detail in her new book, Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution, is published by Faber and it's out just now. Many thanks to you for listening today. Until next time, goodbye.